It's April of 1878, near Como Bluff, Wyoming. Two men are perched on the side of a steep mountain quarry, driving hard at the ground with pickaxes. What they find here could put a lot of money in their pockets. But it's not gold or silver or gems they're after. It's bones. Dinosaur bones. These men have been hired by a very famous paleontologist, a man named Othniel Charles Marsh. And Marsh told them, find as many bones as you can. The bigger, the better, and ship them back to me immediately. But Marsh is also worried. He says, look out for people snooping around. He's worried about one man in particular, his arch rival, another paleontologist named Edward Drinker Cope. As the light begins to fade, the two men spot something on the horizon. It's a person lumbering towards them. The hairs on the back of their arms stand up. He wears a big coat, walks with a limp. He gets closer, closer. What do you want, they ask him. Who are you? He says his name is Haynes. And he's here to see if they want to buy some groceries. But while he's here, what are they doing? Are they looking for fossils? What exactly have they found? The men don't say anything to this Haynes. They try to hide what they're doing, and they shoo him away. Eventually, Haynes walks off, but the men cannot quite get him out of their heads. Was Haynes an undercover agent working for Cope? Was Haynes Cope himself? Were their finds in danger? Were they themselves in danger? If this sounds paranoid, they had reason to be. Because this rivalry, this hatred between paleontologists, went bone deep. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. You've probably heard of the gold rush, but in the 1870s, out west, there was also a fossil rush. Two dueling paleontologists who do anything to get their hands on fossils, including destroying quarries, using spies, smearing each other's reputations, and ripping through their own fortunes. These were the Bone Wars. After this. This year, we all have a choice to make. But it's not just about this donkey or that elephant. Some of us want lobster, oysters, or a Michelin star chef's take on sea bass. Some want to watch whales. Others want to make way for ducklings. And some people just want to get the whole family on top of a big old green monster. We all have different agendas, but that's exactly why Boston is the one thing we can all agree on. Book your getaway at meetboston.com. Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Master Force Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Master Force tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.
The story starts 10 years earlier, in March of 1868. Edward Drinker Cope is just 27 years old, and he's preparing for his first big presentation at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. He's showing off a reconstructed skeleton of a plesiosaur. That's the large sea serpent-looking creature with flippers. You know you know the one I'm talking about. It kind of looks like a Loch Ness. This was just a huge deal, especially for someone of Cope's age. He'd taken this roundabout journey to the sciences. His father had absolutely expected him to inherit the family farm, continue that on. But instead, Cope had rented the farm out, taken the money, and went on expeditions all across the U.S. and Europe digging up fossils. Cope was also really kind of intense. It seemed like he lived to work. He once wrote this to his father. I need every possible aid to distract myself from myself. And if I do not have it, my health suffers. What it would result in if my various outlets for my activities were not at my hand, I cannot tell. But I do not much doubt in insanity. The plesiosaur was a huge opportunity for Cope to make a name for himself. In the relatively new field of paleontology, a level of prestige could also mean an awful lot of money. And the key to that prestige, to breaking in, was to get the attention and approval of the other men in the field. And one of these men came to his presentation, Othniel Charles Marsh. Marsh, like Cope, had also grown up on a farm. But a key difference was Marsh had a very wealthy uncle who sent him to boarding school, then to Yale. And around the time he was graduating, that uncle gave Yale quite a bit of money. So, voila, Marsh was now our professor. Marsh had a reputation for being a bit prickly. A landlady once compared getting to know him with running into a pitchfork. <laughs> in fact, Marsh and Cope had actually already had a bit of a run-in. That same year, Cope had come upon an incredible fossil deposit in New Jersey and gave Marsh a tour. Well, Marsh turned around and hired a man on Cope's crew and diverted some of the fossils directly back to his office in New Haven, keeping them for himself. Back to the plesiosaur. Cope shows Marsh's work. The skeleton is carefully reconstructed from fossil pieces. It's 35 feet long. It's a masterpiece, a sea lizard with a long neck and tail. But there is a problem. A problem which Marsh notices immediately. I suggested to him gently that he had the whole thing wrong and foremost. <laughs> Cope had put the head on the wrong end. He'd put it on the tail, not the neck. When I informed Professor Cope of it, his wounded vanity received a shock from which it has never recovered. And he has since been my bitter enemy. From here on out, it was war. And in the 1870s, a new front opened up. At the time, America was expanding west, home to incredible deposits of gold, silver, minerals, and dinosaur bones. Marsh headed out first on expeditions through what is today Montana and Nebraska. Marsh and his crew rode horseback through scorching hills and canyons, accompanied by a military escort, and turned up fossils 
that had never been seen before, including a new creature with wings, a pterodactyl. Cope, hearing this, knew he had to get in on the action. He headed right to the areas Marsh had traveled through. He hired guides that had worked for Marsh. And while Marsh was playing cowboy, Cope was writing, and writing fast. Back then, the first person to publish a scientific discovery got credit for it. And in the case of finding a new species, they could name it. So Cope wrote like the wind, dashing off hundreds of papers and observations to scientific journals, including some fossils that Marsh had thought were his. Marsh was furious. He hired men to spy on Cope. He developed a secret code to communicate with his crew. He rebuffed Cope in journals, pointing out his errors. Cope basically just thought Marsh was uh, obsessed with him. He joked to a friend. Marsh is Yale's professor of Copology. Then, Marsh learned of an incredible cache of fossils near Como Bluff, Wyoming. The bones found there were just enormous, bigger than anything that had been found in the West, in Europe, anywhere. Marsh's team descended on the area, absolutely paranoid that Cope would be in hot pursuit. As they dug, they were constantly looking nervously over their shoulders. They saw Cope and his spies in every shadow, scuttling across the bluff. They scared away people who showed up at the dig asking too many questions, like that mysterious Haynes trying to sell them groceries. But it turned out they didn't just have Cope to worry about. Their own boss, Marsh, dragged his feet when it came time to pay them and left them strapped for cash, trying to survive during the harsh Wyoming winter. In the end, one of them defected and went right to work for Cope. The two sides continued to needle each other. They would lock each other out of the nearby train stations so specimens couldn't be sent east. They spied on each other. They sometimes threw rocks at each other. And when they'd finished at one dig site before moving on, they would smash the remaining bones. So the other one couldn't get his hands on them. But then, in the 1880s, Marsh got the ultimate upper hand. Not in the field, but in bureaucracy. He was appointed to a position which gave him sway over government funding of scientific expeditions. Marsh was named lead paleontologist on a major government survey. Cope, who was unattached to a university and dependent on government funding to keep his research going, suddenly found himself totally locked out. Desperate for cash, he turned to a mining operation in New Mexico. It did not go well. With mines, it's either everything or nothing. I went in hoping to increase my income. I did so for a while, and then it fell to nothing. Money gone, Cope began to stew and stew and come up with a plan for revenge. When a wrong is to be righted, the press is the best and most Christian medium of doing it. It replaces the old-time shotgun and bludgeon and is a great improvement. Cope began lurking outside of Marsh's labs in New Haven. He collected gossip and grievances from staffers. And in January of 1890, he went to the New York Herald and accused Marsh of destroying fossils, of taking credit for his staff's work, of making scientific errors, and misusing government money. In his response, which took up a full page of the paper, Marsh went for the kill. He brought up that old plesiosaur embarrassment while he was at it. His indignation was great. 
and he asserted in strong language that he had studied the animal for many months and ought to at least know one end from the other. I give this transaction as one sample of Professor Cope and his methods, one taste of the cheese. He even hinted that Cope was a little unstable. Although I had some doubts of his sanity, I gave him good advice. At times, his eccentricities of conduct, to use no stronger term, were hard to bear. The back and forth lasted for weeks, and it was hugely embarrassing to the institutions involved. As a result, Congress ended up canceling the money for the survey that Marsh worked on. Marsh lost his post. Over the next few years, he retreated back to Yale. Cope had won, in a way, but his last few years weren't much better than Marsh's. He had to sell off his collection to make ends meet, and when he died in 1896, he was sleeping on a cot in the Philadelphia Museum, surrounded by the few fossils he had left. There was one more bone war to be fought. When he died, Cope donated his skull to science and challenged Marsh to donate his. Cope was certain his brain would be measured to be bigger than Marsh's. Marsh died three years later of pneumonia. He did not take Cope up on the challenge. Today, Cope and Marsh's bitter feud leaves behind a legacy that is mixed to say the least. It is clear that their methods were not best practices. Like when Cope and Marsh raced in to name a new species, turns out a lot of stuff had already been discovered and named by other people. Paleontologists are still finding redundancies. And imagining these guys destroying quarries instead of letting each other dig there, it's pretty unforgivable. At the same time, that mental image you get when you think of what a dinosaur is, a lot of that comes from Marsh and Cope's discoveries. The pterodactyl, the triceratops, the stegosaurus, to name just a few. It makes you wonder, what is a more powerful motivator than a bitter rivalry? Biographer Earl Lanham wrote that in Marsh and Cope's case, rage and hatred may have been a long-range creative force, as powerful as love. You can catch a glimpse of the dinosaur graveyard at Como Bluff that Cope and Marsh made famous off of Highway 30 near the town of Medicine Bow, Wyoming. There's a cabin nearby that is constructed out of dinosaur bones from the site, and the Wyoming Historical Society calls it the world's oldest building. Get it? Because it's made out of dinosaur bones. Yeah, you get it. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Stitcher Studios. This episode was produced by Amanda McGowan. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire, Gabby Gladney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was sound designed and mixed by Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There's a link in our episode description. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time.
Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decoder Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one.